Good morning. I uh, hope you guys are doing well. We're going to flip over to Acts chapter 20 and uh, jump in, start a new chapter in life. I, God willing, this one will take two weeks, so we'll see what happens. <laughs> so in Acts chapter 20, uh, we're going to, it's an interesting chapter because a lot of it is travel. Uh, there's huge chunks of verses that solely have to do with travel and where Paul is going and who he brings with him and so forth. So we're going to read those and we'll look at where those things are and what's going on really for a context for us. I think it, I don't know about you, but for me personally, it helps tremendously when I can put in real life context things that are happening. Does that make sense? Uh, and then finally, we'll kind of end up at uh, Paul to talk about his travels and then we'll move on to uh, some other uh, stuff in the passage. So Acts chapter 20, verse 1, says, After the uproar ceased, if you remember, that is from 19, there's a riot in Ephesus. So after, after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, he was about to set sail for Syria. He decided to return through Macedonia. So Peter and uh, the Berean, uh, the son of uh, Pyrrhus, accompanied him and the, Th and the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Segundus, Gaius of Derbe and Timothy and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for him, or us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. And on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart the next day. And as he prolonged his speech until midnight, there uh, were many lamps in the upper room and uh, where we were gathered. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we sailed for uh, Asus, or Asus, intending to take Paul aboard there, so he, had, uh, arranged, uh, so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Asus, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing there, we came the following day uh, opposite Chios. And the next day... Uh, we touched at Samus, and the same day after, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So quite a, a big chunk there, a lot going on, I don't, a lot of names that are hard to pronounce and not in our language. Uh, and it can just, I don't know about you, but the first time you read it, it can just kind of seem like, well, there it is. Like, what does this mean? Why does it matter? Who are these people? Just, to, I just want to make a few small notes about this to kind of tuck away. Number one, each one of these people is a person, which seems self-explanatory. But think about this for a second. Each one of these people that were listed, they had family, whether it was extended or, or an immediate family. Uh, they probably had jobs. Remember, as we've been talking about history and so forth, this is an era where most people are literally struggling to get their daily caloric value. They're trying to eat enough. And most people didn't eat enough. And, you know, all the things that were going on in their society and in that place, they decide, you know what, I will travel these miles. Not on an airplane, not in an automobile, not in a train, probably not even on a donkey. Most likely they just walked everywhere that they went. And for some reason, it was worth it to them to do that. And, and I want to talk later about that because, again, you guys know me. I think sermons that say these people tried hard, so we should try hard. God bless you. They're pretty worthless. How do we get there? If I'm in my seat today and I think to myself, I would never do that. That would never be worth it. I need to ask myself, first of all, why is it not worth it? And secondly, why did they think it was worth it? Why were they willing to sacrifice money and family time and these different things to be able to be involved with what God is doing? Why did they feel that way? 
And if I feel that way, now I don't have to worry about it. But if I don't feel that way, it seems worth, worth asking, why don't I feel that way? Why would I not ascribe value to laying down my life for the sake of the gospel? What do I think is more important? What do I think will provide more value? What do I think that Christ will reward me for at the end of my life? Now, again, these are questions we have to ask so that we can move forward in our own Christian life. But having said that, not only are these real people, but they're going real places that take a lot of time. I got a map, if you could put that up there. Now, this is just part of uh, their... Uh, I haven't got a pointer, thanks to the Ivies. So yeah, this, is when you, this is when you know you're a pastor. You get one of these. You, I still play with it, though, so maybe not yet. But the, uh, so basically, what we, where we started reading, the, the riot was here, okay? That's where the riot was. Now, never mind the fact that he's journeyed to Ephesus from, like, way down here where Jerusalem is and so forth. So this doesn't show that. So he starts here. Now, in the Bible, it just says, and he decided to go to Macedonia, She's like, well, that's cool. That's where he went. So he travels like 400 miles. So our verse says he decided to go to Macedonia. So we're like, that's cool. He went to Macedonia. We don't realize it's not like he went across the street. He sailed, hiked, traveled all the way here. So this journey that we're, we're looking at right now is his third, it's Paul's third missionary journey. And he's going to go all over the place in this missionary journey, Okay. So he starts in Macedonia. He gets this list of people, and he starts to travel with them, and they take a boat, and they go to Troas. And he says, hey, I'll meet you at Troas. He decides to kind of travel, and I can't remember which little bay it is. It's right around here somewhere. But he goes to Philippi. So he sends them ahead to Troas, but he comes here, and then later on, then he travels to Troas. And it tells us that it took him five days to get up in here from Philippi to Troas. So when he gets to Troas, he spends three months there. Now, not to confuse the matter, but if you remember, on his second missionary journey, he's already kind of traveled up through here, and when he gets right to about here, he tries to go into Asia. You guys remember that? It says that Paul wanted to go into Asia. Actually, he's probably on this road over here is what they estimate. And he tries to go into Asia, but it says the Spirit forbade him to going into Asia. And then he says, okay, I want to go into Bithynia, which is right here. And then it says the Spirit forbade him to go into Bithynia, so it forced his way to Troas. This was his second missionary journey, the first time that we know of that he went to Troas. It's Troas where he meets, I believe, I can't remember who it is anymore. I should have re-looked it up because I remembered I didn't know who it was in first service too, but I needed a beef stick. What do you want? So there's, he meets like, uh, he meets, uh, I believe it's Silas and Luke. Uh, Luke, Luke and Silas, I, I believe that's who he is. That's when he meets them right there. And, and remember in Acts 14, that's when Luke begins to say, we went here, we went there. So up until that point, Luke is just recording for us what Paul did. They went there, he did this, right? But in Acts chapter 14, for a while, it switches when they meet Troas, we went to these places, right? So he is now back in Troas after this big journey. He spends three months there. Once he leaves, three, and this is where the incident with Eutychus happens, what we just read, that he's there teaching and then he falls down. So uh, when he leaves Troas, he sends the boys around on the ocean, but he himself chooses to walk. It's interesting. It doesn't say why he did that, and I want to make a note of that. The scripture does not tell us why he decided to do that. It just tells us that he decided to do that. But I would like to make one application from that, one, one side note. Paul didn't always choose the most efficient ways to do things. This is like a 40, 50-mile walk. This is a one-day boat trip or less. Does that make sense? So often in our lives, we look at efficiency as, as if it's the end-all of our lives, what we need to be. And there's obviously a place for efficiency. You know, you don't, for, if, if you live here on the peninsula, you don't go, hey, I'm going to drive to Costco today, come home, and then tomorrow I'll go to Fred Meyer. Because that would be pretty much useless, unless I suppose the Holy Spirit said, hey, go home and then come back. I, you know, that'd be cool. I don't know. But, so, but we, the efficiency is not a bad thing. It's not an evil thing. It's not a terrible thing. It's just not the thing. It's not the ultimate thing. You know, people, people have uh, misquoted and said things like, cleanliness is next to godliness, which is not a quote from the Bible. 
<laughs> I guess you could say cleanliness is next to like, I don't know. I don't know what you'd say it's next to. But anyway, but so, so also efficiency is not godliness. Efficiency is not righteousness. It's a helpful tool that we can have in our belt, but it's not the end all. You know, I, I, we, could, we could be like, Paul, what are you doing? Souls are being lost. And you're just taking four days, three, four days to walk when you could take a boat in one day? Where's the urgency? Where's your care for souls? Why would you do that? I don't understand this. He just chose to be inefficient. He also evidently chose to be by himself. Whatever, maybe he needed those three, four days to kind of recharge. And, you know, you can actually, if you talk to certain doctors and stuff like that, there's, there's compassion fatigue. There's introverts. One of the big problems that introverts have is they need to recharge after spending time with people. They need that alone time. We can either get all up in arms and try to measure people that need that alone time, like Paul, or we can just go, oh, okay, you decided to walk for four days and be alone. That's cool. Do what you need to do. So I think it's noteworthy that Paul didn't always choose the most efficient way to do things. He took time by himself, and he took time to, just to walk and just consider. Think about that. He's walking on Roman stone roads all day for three to four days, just walking along, and he chose to do it. Don't feel bad for having recreation. Don't feel bad for taking time in your life to recharge and to figure things out. Don't feel bad or somehow it's ungodly to just stop and just go, okay, I, I need some time. I got to pray over this. I got to figure this out. There's a lot of times, I think, in our lives where some decision has to be made in a day or two days, and we just freak out about it. There's, there are definitely times, though, where we can just say, no, I'm not going to make that decision. I'm not going to make that decision today. And people will go, well, then you're just, that happens somewhat frequently at the church. You know, well, I need this today and I need this right now. And we, oh, you know what, I'll bring it to the elders and we'll pray about it. No, I need it right now. Okay. Well, if you need it, if you truly need it right now, I guarantee you God will give it to you right now. But if you can actually wait a couple days for some prayer and things to be worked out, then that's probably what will be what happened. Don't feel like you have to rush everywhere. Be willing to walk places. It will refresh your soul. So he starts heading down from here. He walks. Then they meet in, uh, here at uh, Assis. And then they take a boat down to here. And then they take the boat around. So he's just describing for us where they end and where the, the route that they take. And they end in Miletus. Now, this is interesting because, remember, it says that he wanted to avoid Asia, which is typically this area, kind of right on, around in here. He wanted to avoid Asia. Now, obviously, this is not our Asia because our Asia is like up there. Uh, but this is the Asia Minor of the New Testament. And so he, he wanted to avoid it, but then he gets to Miletus, and what does he do? He sends a messenger back to Ephesus. Because he's going to meet, in, chat, in verse 20, he's going to meet with the Ephesian elders. Again, wouldn't it have been more efficient just to like, beep, go right there? Or to find a ship on this island that was going to go to Ephesus rather than just kind of bunny hopping around to Miletus? So I don't want to make, again, some sort of uh, doctrinal assertion or make say this is how it had to be because I don't know. But I would like to note that he says that he was in a hurry, right? He's trying to get to Jerusalem for the feast. That's why he skipped Ephesus. That's what we just read. So somewhere in that, either he figured he had enough time or the Lord spoke to his heart or whatever happened, he stops his boat trip way short, like hundreds of miles short, of Jerusalem for the feast, and instead he sends a messenger. Remember, there's no texting or Facebook to the to the elders there, and he sends a messenger to Ephesus. Now this is like between 60, 75 mile hike. You ever think about that? It's a little blip on our map, like boop, and it's gonna hop over to Ephesus. That, if you'll notice, is a mountain range. <laughs> So what's the point? The point is that he stops his boat trip here and sends someone to walk to there. Maybe they took a boat back all the way around here because that's a city. I don't, think there's a, I don't think there's a passage there. And a boat to go all the way around, if there is a boat that does that. I don't, I don't know what their commuter flights were like, but you know they have this. But most likely, this person had to take a small boat trip and then walk to get there, or, or take a boat around it. The point is, 
all of a sudden he becomes inefficient again. He's got a schedule. He's trying to make it to the feast. And then something stops him and says, no, 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 no. I need to talk to these guys. I need to talk to these guys. And the crazy thing is, he sends someone there to go get them, and they come. I wonder, because if I was them, and I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. I just walked like 60 miles over mountain range, and you just passed me by on a boat? Like, you didn't pull in? You didn't jump and swim ashore? You wanted to talk to me. I didn't want to talk to you. You called me here. What are you talking about? They came. They got a summons from Paul. Hey, would you please meet me here? And they said, as family men, as church, I mean, I don't know if they all had families, but typically they did. As church elders, as people who have jobs, as people that need every cent they bring in on average for their home, they said, you know what? We will take a four-day walk over a mountain ridge, a small boat ride, and come meet you. And then after we're done talking for a few hours here, then we'll take the same trip back. Now, there's something that these people clearly seem to be seeing, right? You don't do that stuff unless it has value, unless you perceive that there's some sort of value. Like for us, sometimes, depending what mood we're in, how much we, you know, where our blood sugar is at, somebody can call us and be like, can you help me move? And we're like, yeah. Yeah, I can. You didn't say, will I? You said, can I? You know, or if you have a pickup truck and somebody calls you in the first day, hey, how you doing? I'm doing good. What's up? Do you have a pickup truck? Yep. Glad you noticed. Right? Because we don't always necessarily put the, the value on helping someone as, as high as it truly is, right? So these people, all these people, it doesn't matter if it's, and they all have pretty cool names, right? I mean, if you're looking for baby names, I mean, Sopater, what's up? I'm feeling it, yeah. Tychicus, Aristarchus. But all these, these are what all these people have going on. So all, everybody mentioned in this, they all have lives, they all have families, they don't have leisure time. Leisure time like doesn't exist for the most part. And yet somehow these trips and these investments were worth it to them. So why was it worth it to them? Why was it worth it to Paul to leave uh, basically being part of, part, of, uh, a big, part of Judaism, being a leader in Judaism, becoming like an up-and-comer, like possibly high priest kind of leader in, Ju- in Judaism? That he would say in Philippians, he says, everything that I have outside of Christ, he, says, he literally says, it's poop. That word there, some, some translations translate it rubbish. Other translations uh, translate it uh, uh, like the new ones, some of the new ones, garbage, and some say dung. But the word that's used is literally an ancient Greek word for what sailors used to shout if they got pooped on by a seagull. So you fill in the blanks of what that word probably means. And he says, that's what I count everything in my past when in comparison to Christ. He says it's all poo, which is kind of radical, right? Because he's well-educated. He's genius-level intelligence. We know that from other historical, extra-biblical places that he, this guy was uh, insanely intelligent. We, we can see how he, he, you know, I don't know where the Holy Spirit starts and a, and a person's brain begins, but we see as he writes there, he has a certain writing style that he uses that scholars can note for us. And in the book of Romans, as he flawlessly, by the Spirit, lays out the exact way that salvation works and the mechanics of it. And he decides all that stuff, except for in the context of Christ, it's worthless. It's beyond worthless. It's yucky to me. And really, the difference, or I shouldn't even say the difference, but the similarities of Paul with us and what he was going through is the fact that he just made decisions in his life Small decisions that brought him to places where he got to know Christ. Whether it was him deciding, hey, you know what? I'll go to the desert. There's probably none of us here who can say, yeah, I chilled in the desert for a couple of years with Jesus and he personally taught me how the gospel works. Paul could say that. We, we can't say that. But we do have the Holy Spirit in us also. And we have one another. And every day 
We're met with decisions. Do I want to be more in fellowship with Jesus or do I want to be less in fellowship with Jesus? And I'm not saying that there's condemnation from Jesus if we choose no. But the bottom line is we cannot continue to say no to Jesus on a regular basis and expect to have an understanding or a vision for his work like these guys had. It just doesn't work that way. It's not how human beings work. But these guys on the regular, they're saying yes and they're they're willing to do it. So they show up and they begin to talk to Paul. And really what I want to talk about today, I just call it ministry pro tips from Paul. And we're just going to read a bit about his ministry and about how it was fruitful there in Ephesus. Because remember, he left Ephesus, went way north, now he's back south, and he's invited the Ephesian elders to come and talk to him. So in Ephesians 20, verse 17, we'll pick back up. Well, I should mention, he raises this kid from the dead. Cool. I don't know, honestly, what do you do with that? Like, he did it. I mean, the Lord did it. And it would have been a huge testimony. I'm not minimizing what happened. I'm just saying it's pretty wild. They're all there. They're listening to the word. So you guys think you have it bad. I go like five minutes over. He went to midnight. He went to midnight. And they actually stayed. They were like into it. He, and the only thing that interrupted it is the fact that someone died. And it was such an interruption that Paul's like, oh, no, he's cool. Go sit down. And then he keeps talking. And he goes till daybreak. And then they have breakfast, and then he, he jumps out. So I'm not trying to minimize the miracle by any means, but like in the context, it's kind of, it's it, a couple things. Number one, it's important to note that the book of Acts spans anywhere between like 20 to 30 years, okay? And how many times are people being raised from the dead mentioned? Not many. It's also noteworthy that this event comes right in the middle of all these other events, Right? I'm going to my least, like, you know, six, seven months or whatever it is that he, after he leaves Ephesus and does all this stuff. And it's, I'm not saying it's a footnote because someone got raised from the dead, but it's a footnote. We're doing all this stuff. The kingdom of God is growing and Paul's preaching. All these people are getting involved. It's so great. People are getting saved. They're getting discipled. This amazing work is happening. This guy got raised from the dead because he got tuckered out and died. And then anyway, then we went down here and did this. That's the complete, like, that's like the vibe of it. And the bottom line is this. God does miraculous stuff when he's building his kingdom. And he's merciful to us, and there's miracles that happen outside of that exact context. But great things occur. This is something I've been personally thinking about a lot. I don't want to be unwise with finances or time or something like that. That's not what I'm promoting. But what I am promoting is the fact is that the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. If someone needs to be brought back from the dead... They will come back from the dead. If someone needs to stay dead, they will stay dead. And they'll be with Jesus because that's the way better end of the deal. We mourn, and it's understandable when someone dies. But the person that dies, that knows Christ, they are not mourning. In fact, if the, the one little weird event that we can look at is that when that witch summons Samuel back, and you guys familiar with what I'm talking about? There's, a, there's this uh, kind of a secret undercover witch in Israel and Samuel dies, and one of the kings kind of wants to get back in touch with him. And so this is all, this is a bad scenario, 100%. But so he goes to this witch, and he's like, hey, I want to talk to Samuel. She's like, all right. And so she does her little whatever she does, and Samuel comes back. And the first thing he says is, why did you do this? What are you doing? Why did you bring me back here? Like, I was with the Lord, and now I'm with you, funky witch. Like, what's going on? That's literally what happened. People that die in Christ, we mourn, but it's better for them. In fact, one of the best verses out of Isaiah, I have to go back and look it up. I think it's Isaiah 57. It says that no one understands when the righteous dies that they rest in their bed and God has hidden them from evil. It is not, it's a bad thing. Death is not natural. You don't have to see a lot of dead people to realize like that's, what they told us in high school that de- death is natural, that's not natural. You don't have to see a lot of corpses to realize, like, that is not okay. That's, there, there's nothing to celebrate here. But it is a rejoicing because that, that person's gone on to be with the Lord. But I digress. What's happening here is that Paul begins this ministry, and there's these really cool things that are happening to get back on course here. And we have some neat things to look into of how it's being done. 
Sorry for going on that big thing. So it says there in verse 18, And when they came to him, he said to them, You know yourselves how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. So the first thing in verse 18, this, in verse 18 is Paul says this. He says, You know that from the first day I stepped in Asia, I lived among you. This is a really important concept. Now, let me make a disclaimer really quick. I am not saying you always better be here on Sunday or you're not in God's will. or any. I'm not, I'm not making commentary on being safe with COVID. I'm not making commentary on any of that, okay? So if we could just get that out right from the beginning, I think it's important. What I am saying is that Paul's ministry, I think we could look at Paul's ministry in Ephesus and call it fruitful or successful. Not successful to try to cheapen the idea, but successful in the, in the idea that so many people got saved that idol makers started losing money. That feels successful, right? I mean, when you cause a riot just because you love enough people that they get saved and the love of Christ flows into their heart, that an entire city's revenue is starting to go down, I feel like you've made a dent, you know, in the gates of hell on that one. And so he, he says, the first thing about that ministry, he says, I was with you. I was among you all the time. And being among one another is the primary source that we have to build each other up. I know we have Facebook and we have devotionals and all that, and I'm not minimizing those things. But there is something more important. There's something more real, more intuitive, more gratifying to look people in the eyes and to be able to converse and to discuss and to hear and to love and to care and to interact with each other. That's what we were made for. So a lot of times we, we want to have, I, I, think, I think we do, right? We want to have successful ministries. We want to have a fruitful ministry on this earth, right? We want to be at the end of our life to be able to say, maybe, maybe I didn't end up like Daddy Warbucks, but you know what? I, I think by the grace of God, I'll have riches in heaven. I think that's where we all want to end up. And the primary goal, the primary part of that, the, the, the facilitating attribute of all of that is going to be fellowship. In Acts 2.42, that's kind of a lot of churches' mantra, you know, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and the fellowship, the breaking of bread and to prayers. And the article is actually in the Greek text for a reason. It's not just fellowship around, you know, there's a million fellowships. You can have fellowship around trucks, around fishing, quilting, right? There's all sorts of things that you can have fellowship around. And that's great. Like, you go... Quilt your arms off, like, God bless you in that. I'm not minimizing those things. But there's the fellowship. And the, the fellowship is the fellowship of the Spirit, the fellowship of the Lord. And it's that interaction between believers. I love you. You love me. I accept you for who you are, and you're a work in progress. You accept me for who I am, and I'm a work in progress. You see, fellowship kind of gets left out sometimes because we're all about like, the apostles' doctrine. Yeah, get some, the word. And then we're like, yeah, worship, breaking of bread, communion, absolutely. Prayers, you know, yes, yes, prayers. And then we're like, fellowship, eh, you know, the office is on, I got Netflix, feeling a little tired today. Ah, I mean, is fellowship really, do we really have to? These people kind of wear me out. I mean, like, what if someone has a problem and I have to hear it? You know, what? just all the weird things that go through our minds. When, in, when on many days of the week, when we have the problem, if someone would have just listened to us in person and cared how rich it would have been. So fellowship, we're here in fellowship. And wow, we're listening to the apostles' doctrine. We have the opportunity to pray together. But fellowship wins souls. You know, when I got saved when I was 16, I could care less about the Bible. I'm just being honest. I'm not trying to be crude. I'm not trying to be crude at all. I'm just trying to be honest. I didn't care about the Bible. It, mean, it meant nothing to me. The fact that somebody could be like, this is God's word. I'm like, well, it's really big, and it has no pictures. So is there like a graphic novel version? There wasn't back then. There is now. But, you know, it, I just wasn't into it. Prayer to me was one of the most boring things on the planet. We had a prayer meeting, and I was like, so let me get this straight. We're going to go hang out and be quiet for like an hour and a half? I feel like I don't want to do that at all. 
that's really how I looked at the things of, of, the, of God. I would go to church, and like it was cool if it was short, and you know, then I'd kind of move on with my life. But what happened was fellowship happened. I was 16 years old and probably like 100 pounds lighter, and every Sunday, there, there was this group of guys. I was 16, and there was a group of guys that were probably like 18 to 22. They were all at Cal Poly State University. And they would call me like, hey, we're playing softball tonight. We're playing ultimate frisbee tonight. Hey, we're playing, we're playing basketball tonight. And they would invite me out to sports, and I would go to these, and we'd play sports, and we'd have fun. And they were guys that loved each other. They weren't shoving each other. They weren't cursing at each other. There was no competition in, in the unhealthy ways. They were just, we were just out having fun. And then typically we'd go get like frozen yogurt or something like that afterwards, because there was actually good frozen yogurt places in California. And we would go do that. And then, and then they would just talk about, they'd be like, oh, yeah, this Sunday this happened and this happened. And the thing was, it wasn't like, okay, James, we lured you in with basketball, but now we're going to talk about the word and you're going to like it. It wasn't like that. It was, they were excited about these things because their lives were being changed. They knew I didn't really care much about church, but they would just say, like, yeah, this is what the Lord is doing and this is what they said on Sunday. And I would glean from that. They'd be like, oh, that's kind of cool. And that fellowship brought me into a place where I actually cared what the dude behind the podium was saying. Fellowship is so important. And I, I want to I be careful here, but there's a lot of weird pressure in Christianity where it's, people like to turn to, what is it, Ezekiel 33 or 31 or so, I can't remember what it is now, where if the watchman who watches over the city doesn't warn the city and the enemy comes... Their blood is upon his head. And there's these warnings, right? And sometimes in Christianity, people take those things and they say, that's about the gospel. And if you're not warning every person you see, if they die and go to hell, that blood is on your head. Like you're somehow accountable for someone having a lifetime of rejecting Jesus. And then all of a sudden, there's this guilt in play. And you see people and you're like, it can be almost overwhelming, the anxiety of like, oh, if I don't tell someone, I'm supposed to tell everybody, oh, I'll be ready, ready in season and out of season, oh, the blood upon my head, and this total like weird dynamic, and then you approach people out of guilt and shame and fear for your own destiny with like, ah, you should really receive Jesus and stuff, and he loves you, ah, you know, it's so unnatural and terrible. So nobody's saying that here. We're just saying that having fellowship, people knowing that you love them, is of incredible value. Fellowship is so important. And I just encourage you, pray through what fellowship God has for you to be involved in. And don't, let me say this, don't minimize fellowship that you think is below you. It's a mistake. Because just meeting people where they're at and being willing to discuss the things of the Lord as the Spirit leads you is of infinite value. We, I'm convinced for myself and for Christians, not that I'm dictating what other Christians should do, that we really miss the boat sometimes when we try to minister to people where we're at. Come to me and I'll tell you about Jesus in a way that I like to do it. Instead of, I see you're in the gutter. Or, I see you don't care about the things of God. If those college guys had looked at me and said, this guy doesn't even care about church. He's not even worth our time. Who knows if I ever would have come to have a relationship beyond salvation with Christ. If everybody along my way had just been like, you know what, I don't like, you're not even interested in the things of God. Your talk is beneath me. What you're, you're involved in, I don't, you only want, I don't care about that. I have holy things to do. Where would I have been? I would have been left out. But Paul says, I was among you. I was with you guys. Remember what happened in Ephesus? They were casting spells. Believers were trying to use magic. I'm not saying Paul was involved with that, but he was still ministering to people that were going home and being like, oh, holy Demetrius, or Artemis, do this for me. He says, I was among you. I was helping you. I loved you guys. If you want a successful, a fruitful ministry, you have to be where people are. You have to. Or have people to your home if they feel comfortable. 
but let's not lose out on the fact that we have an eternal and an amazing endeavor, not based on guilt and shame or condemnation, but on love. The second thing he says there in verse 19, he says, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. First he says it was with all humility. And it means, humility means lowly, the, the word literally translates to lowliness of mind. I really like C.S. Lewis's, uh, Lewis's definition uh, for humility, and I think it's a, a valid definition. But he says, humility is not, to, to, it's not self-degradation. Uh, de- In other words, it's not me trashing myself. I'm dumb. I'm stupid. I don't know anything. I'm no good. I'm worthless. That's not true humility. He, the true humility is to not consider oneself. So in other words, somebody can come to you and be like, you're the biggest piece of trash ever. And you're like, no, that kind of hurts, but okay. I mean, that's probably true. I'm pretty sinful. I've definitely, uh, you know, had some thoughts that were, wouldn't make it into heaven. And uh, someone can come to you and be like, you're the best person I've ever known. And you'd be like, hey, I appreciate you saying that. Probably not, also not true, but, you know, that's, that's cool. I appreciate it. Either one rolls off your back because you are not considering yourself in the equation. Someone has just said something to you. Someone can mistreat you. I'm not saying stay in a situation where you're being mistreated, but if someone mistreats you, tells you you're trash, you'd be like, well, okay, whatever. I mean, that's your opinion, but I don't have to take it in personally into my heart. I don't, because you don't really know me. You don't see me as Christ does, so I can move on with my life and vice versa with the good stuff. So humility is an important idea when you're, when you're ministering. Paul could have got into any argument, any debate with anybody at any time, and then made them feel like a worm because that's what his intellect and his knowledge in Christ could have done. I mean, just read the book of Romans. Could you imagine trying to debate Paul? Well, actually, Paul. Paul would just be like, well, actually, when I was in the desert talking to Jesus personally, we covered that. <laughs> you know what I mean? So why don't you just be quiet, sit back in your seat, go to your little cute little house over there, and I'll be over here with Jesus. Right? He easily could have done that to anyone. And when we watch discourse in our generation right now, that's what it is. If you watch any of, if, if you watch Bill Mayer or if you watch Ben Shapiro or, or whoever in between, what you watch is them make an argument that absolutely slams and destroys the other side, which that's fine for politics if you just want to destroy people and get laws passed. That works amazingly. But have you ever seen someone at, talking to Bill Mayer or Ben Shapiro be like, that's an excellent point. I appreciate you being so kind to me. I want to know more about this Israel that you say you follow. No, what do they do? They go away smashed and angry. Am I saying Ben Shapiro's wrong or Bill Mayer's wrong or right? No, I'm not making a commentary either way on that. You can decide that for yourself. I'm just saying that discourse in our current society on Facebook and news stations and all of that It has nothing to do with winning souls or helping people. It has everything to do with destroying the other side. And that's just, that's not part of God's kingdom. You can enjoy that stuff. I don't care. That's up to you. But let me ask you this. I would just say this. If you sit down, because I actually like to watch Bill Mayer and and, uh, Ben Shapiro both, because I'm interested in their points. I I just like social interaction, honestly. I'm kind of weird, but so I'm just super into it. I just like to watch the interactions. And you can watch those things, but I'll tell you what. How do you feel after watching an hour of Bill Mayer or Ben Shapiro? Do you feel like, dude, Jesus is Lord, and I just want to see people get saved? Rock on. I'm so into the gospel right now. Or do you feel like, yeah, those stupid Republicans, yeah, those stupid Democrats, if they would just watch this, then we'd have the laws we need. Right? Which one, honestly, how do you feel? What motivates you? Are you thinking, it's like, dude, I just want to call Bill Mayer and just be like, I love you. I love you. Jesus loves you. He shed his blood for you. How does it make, how, what does it stir up inside of you? If you're watching things, if you're listening to things that stir up wrath and hatred for the other side of the aisle, you need to repent. I'm sorry. I'm not trying to be rude or mean or anything. But stirring up hatred in your heart for other people is not conducive to God's kingdom. If you're watching those shows and you're just like, wow, these are some solid points. I'll move on with my life. And I do love Jesus and I do love those people genuinely. Then rock it. 
Go for it. There's nothing wrong with being having, having a dog in the political race. Nothing wrong at all. But it's not our primary race. Our primary race is to love Christ and to make him known. Love Christ and love others. Paul says, I was with you humbly. And I was, I was communicating. I wanted to help you. You know, Jesus, in John 13, 35, he says, the night, you know, this is, this is the upper room. He's, he's talking to the fellows. It's the night before he's betrayed. And he says, here's how everybody will know you're my disciples. By your love for one another. People are not going to know we're Jesus' disciples because we know the Bible inside and out. Would it be cool to have the whole Bible memorized? Sure it would. But that's not how people are going to know you're a disciple of Jesus. Would it, are people going to know that we're disciples if we, you know, I don't know, any, anything, any other thing. If we're successful, if we're rich, if we're poor, you know, whatever. Is that No, it's going to be because you love someone. What stands out more than anything right now in our society? More than anything. Love. Love does. When someone loves you, when someone hears what the crazy stuff you have to say, and they still say, hey, that's cool. I love you. We might revisit that at some point, but right now, I love you. I accept you. Christ accepts you. He knows you're broke. He knows we're weird. He knows we have all sorts of delusional thoughts. He knows that, and he loves you. If you're, at the, if you're at the checkout aisle and, and you make some weird statement to the, check, the checker and they just go, hey, whatever, that's cool. That would be so rare to actually have discourse with someone that you disagree with. And they just say, hey, you know what, you're at family dinner, you're at Thanksgiving. And, you know, I don't know about, it seems, I, th I think most families have like the, 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 the Republicans and the liberals, right? And you, you kind of like, you get together and you're eating. Everybody's like, we just got to be chill. Everybody knows you're supposed to be chill. And then someone just like throws some little nugget out there. <laughs> like a fishing pole. It's literally trolling. It's like, Joe Biden. <laughs> you're like, why did you do that? I was enjoying the turkey. But can you imagine if instead someone just was like, yeah, you know, I don't know, I don't really agree with him on some of his stances, but I love that dude. And I hope he, I hope he, I see him in heaven and we get to high five. Half of us might be just be like, Shh, I can't eat with you anymore. That's literally where we come to as a society. You support Trump, you're a racist. You support Joe Biden, you're just a, I don't, I don't really know what they call people that support Joe Biden, a snowflake. You know, you're woke. You're trash. I can't eat with you. What happens to just like, hey, I, you can, I don't know, I love you. I just want you to make, I just want you to get to heaven. We're going to disagree politically, but I love you. We're going to disagree maybe on how schooling should be done. We can disagree on essential oils. We can disagree on insurance, on social. We, I know, right? So, mm, don't bring up essential oils. But, you know, <laughs> you can take ibuprofen. I'll use mint. Well, it's all good because I love you, right? Jesus isn't going to, when you come into heaven, he's going to be like, so I'm going to need to inspect your liver to see how much ibuprofen you use. All right, let me see those temples. Oh, oh, that's a lot of layers of mint. Come on in. You know, I mean, but we treat it that way, don't we? If someone comes along and they don't like what our medicine is or they don't like what this is or that is, we're just like, I don't, I don't know if I can have fellowship with you. you. So what we're saying is like, yes, Jesus' blood is kind of strong. It was, it's kind of a decent foundation, but realistically, politics is more important for who I hang out with. Realistically, medical care, that's more important. Government structure, that's more important. I can love you until you breach these lines, and then even though we'll spend eternity together forever, unified as Christ is with his church right now, to hell with you, because you don't vote like I do. That's how we act, isn't it? That's what's happening. If we want to draw people to Christ whether it's through church or our homes or whatever. I don't, I don't care what the venue is. If we want to draw people to Christ, it will be because we love him and we love one another. Otherwise, we draw them to an agenda they agree with. And what use is that? That we can all high-five each other and pat each other on the back. 
that we all believe the same thing about something that has nothing to do with eternity. But when we humbly are among the people, voting our consciences, whatever, but we just say, I, I love you. That's what love is. It's agape love. I accept you. I don't accept all of your behaviors. I don't accept all of your opinions. I don't endorse all that stuff, but that's irrelevant. I love you in a way where I say, I want the best for you, regardless of what you've done. Twice, once in the Old and once in the New Testament, once in Ezekiel or Jeremiah and once in, in uh, Timothy, we're told the Lord does not delight in the death of the wicked. Think about that. God does not find pleasure when a wicked person dies and receives judgment. We're like so opposite of that sometimes. We're like James and John. Um, they said there's no place for you in Samaria, so would you like us to call down fire and burn those fools? And what was Jesus' response? You don't know what spirit you're of. That's wild. Think about that response. You have a spirit inside of you. I'm not saying possession, but just an attitude, an idea. You have a spirit inside of you, he's saying to James and John, and you don't know what that spirit is. You don't even know it's there. You want judgment and death. They were so far from what God truly wanted for humanity. But he, Jesus accepted them. He didn't say, so you know what? I'm going to find two new guys. Go back to your fishing gig, and we'll, we'll do some hunting. I'll put an ad out. We'll see who we can bring in for apostleship here. No, he said, hey, you, you come with me. You're of the wrong spirit. I love you. I accept that you're of the wrong spirit. It needs to change. But now we're going to walk together again. So when we want to bring death and destruction, we want to call down fire on people because they don't let our Jesus in. They don't accept our Jesus or what he says is right. And, and, and we're literally thinking to ourselves, I wish these people would die a horrible death or I wish whatever. We don't even know what spirit we're of. He didn't even say, you have this spirit and you're acting it. He said, you don't even know that you have it. That should scare the daylights out of us. To think that we could be responding in those ways that are antichrist and not even know it. But to be glued to this idea, loving God and loving people, that's where successful ministry is. One man plants, one man waters, but God gets the increase. It's the Lord's ministry. We're just here to plant and to water to each individual, regardless of race or creed or sexuality or anything. We're just here to plant and water in love. And God's going to get the increase. Nowhere am I saying there's not time to talk about sin. Obviously there is. But that's going to come at a time with it where the Lord works and leads and we're able to come alongside in love, and not vengeance, but in love and in kindness not even self-righteousness, love and kindness, and say, hey, I see you have this going on. Let me help you with that. It's going to destroy you as you walk with the Lord. It's going to hinder you. It's a huge difference between you suck, your thoughts suck, get in line with Jesus, or I just won't eat with you anymore. We, we need a societal shift, especially in the church, the church universally. We need to shift from agenda to love. We have to, or else we're just not going to be really involved in building God's kingdom. We'll just kind of be on the sidelines bickering about stuff. Lastly there, he says he didn't shrink. He says, I did not shrink back. Verse 20, he says, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house in house. Two things um, real quick here. Number one, it's important to note that Paul talked about public and house to house. You see movements where people are like, Oh, if you're not in a home church, you're milk toast, and your church is stupid. Well, Paul, Paul says he taught people in public. There were public buildings that he was teaching in. He taught people in the school of Tyrannus. You have public teaching. And then you have other people that are like, oh, you're in a home church? What kind of freaky weirdo are you? You know, no, home churches are perfectly valid. I think, honestly, if we want to share the whole gospel and everything that the Bible says about sexuality and whatnot, I'd be surprised if we lasted 10 years surprised if we can meet like this for, for another 10 years to talk about and say the things that the Bible has to say. It's coming. It's coming. It's going to be illegal 
to say the things that the Bible has to say soon. And then guess what we'll have? Home churches. We'll have, it'll be fine because we'll have home churches. And, and, and maybe someday we'll get the privilege of being arrested. And we'll have prison ministries. See, that's the thing is, you know, you ever heard the saying that they can't take away your birthday? You ever heard that saying before? Like, oh, well, I don't know. I grew up with it. No matter, like, what happened. It was, it was basically like a, like a colloquialism for, like, well, who cares about the government? They can't take away your birthday, which is obviously a little short-sighted because they can take away an awful lot. But, you know, the, the point is this. No matter what they do to us, Paul's commentary on going to prison, and not just prison, historians tell us that he was in a Roman prison and then he was in essentially a hole in the floor. Like you got chucked in a hole and there was a grate over the top of it. And it was from that place where he wrote a lot of his epistles, Timothy, the prison epistles, Titus. And his commentary about his hole in the floor jail cell was that the word of God cannot be hindered. He says, yeah, I'm in prison, but the word of God cannot be imprisoned. See, if my life is about this earth and about good retirement, hey, have a good retirement. But if that's what my life is about, if that's what my goal is, that if I end up in a hole in the ground in a prison, my life is ruined, isn't it? It's over. My whole expectation has been robbed of me. If my life is a good job and, and, a, and a good family and, and a picket fence and all that, then that can easily be taken from me in a lot of different ways. Whether it's erroneous death or divorce or whatever it might be, that can all be taken from me. Those are all good things. I'm not saying we shouldn't want those things. But if that is your pursuit, your life is easily lost. We just had a 14-year-old boy perish in the water. That's a devastating blow, and I don't, I don't wish that on anyone but it doesn't have to be the end of a life, another life, the family's life. God can make you through that. God can heal you through that. If your whole life is your family, it can be taken from you. But if your life is Christ, in other words, interaction and relationship and serving him, pursuing him, then your life can never be taken from you. Never. Because it's Christ. You can be in the worst jail cell. You can suffer the worst loss in the world, which honestly probably is the loss of a child. And you can keep moving and keep moving forward. He is so powerful and strong and supernatural. But it comes back to the realities. Christianity is just a moment-by-moment decision-making process of saying yes to Jesus. That's what it is. Every time, every context, every difficulty, when we draw lines and say, you know what, I'll do this but not that. i got to hold on to this in my life. We're robbing ourselves, ultimately. And we don't want to do that. We want to be those that are continually to be being turned and brought more to be like Christ. And then lastly, he says, I, I preach repentance towards God and faith in Christ. You know, this was John the Baptist's message. This is Jesus' message. Make straight the paths of the Lord, right? Repent and make straight the paths of the Lord. And, the, and we've talked about that in great detail. We're running out of time. But the point is this, that for a fruitful ministry, our goal is not to stop people from doing things. <laughs> Behavior, honestly, isn't our goal. As, as It's a symptom. We're not... We're not out here trying to, we, we would love to stop abortion, but you know what's better than stopping abortion? Stopping people wanting to abort. How do you stop someone from wanting to abort? You love them. You don't stop people from aborting children picketing out in front. All you do is make them angry and bring the police. But you know what you do? You love the people and you care for them. I've, I've read of a few ministries of men and women that actually stand out in front of the clinics and they just say, hey, can I pray for you? Before they go in, hey, can I pray for you? And, then, and people are like, what? Why do you want to, what, you, what, you hate me because I'm having an abortion? No, 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 I don't hate you at all because you're having an abortion. God doesn't hate you because you're having an abortion. God loves you and he loves the child in your belly and I just want to pray for you that you would listen to God and that you'd be blessed. And they have this amazing ministry where people are literally like, 
not getting abortions. Or you have the, I don't know what it's called now because they just changed names, but in a story, it used to be called the Pregnancy Resource Center. And they had a, they had a big part of their funding was for a um, uh, ultrasound machine. Because to, statistically, across the country, from, from clinics, abortion clinics and other clinics, if a woman has, uh, has, has the, uh, what can I think of that? I just said it. Has the ultrasound. Just be thankful I did that motion. Has the ultrasound. <laughs> then they're 90% less likely to get an abortion. Because they see their baby. They see the heartbeat. You know, a lot of people don't even know, really know what an abortion is. If, it's, if abortion is important to you, 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 you think to yourself, you ever, you ever notice that we as human beings, we always assume that everybody has the same knowledge and thoughts that we do, and we relate to each other on that, and then we're always shocked when people don't. It's kind of funny, but a lot of people, they don't know what abortion is. They really think like, well, there's just this bundle of cells in there, so why are you guys getting all riled about a bundle of cells being taken out of me so that I don't, you know, whatever, have to drop out of college or you know, whatever it might be? A lot of people think that way. I've met a lot of full-grown dudes that don't know what partial birth abortion is. And when you tell them, well, what they do, it's partial birth. They bring the head out of a premature baby, and they ram an implement into its brain, and they stir it around. And you know what they say? No. No. There's no way that's legal. And you're like, you should read the law. You should read the federal law. Or they pump saline to burn the baby to death into the womb. And they go, no, no, no. And you say, yeah, well, during the Obama administration, they, they did a, a really solid thing. They made it so if the baby was born alive but you still wanted to die, you had to have a really nice, flowery, cool room to put it in so it could starve to death there. And people go, no, no, yo, get your tinfoil hat off. So a lot of these people, they're getting accosted and trashed to get an abortion, they don't even know what they're doing. So if we can love people away from their sin, if we can love people, hey, why, you ever ask yourself, why is somebody addicted to alcohol? What's happened in their life that's made them not want to be sober? Why are people addicted to drugs? What happened to they were kids or when they were alive that makes them want to never be sober and have to deal with reality? Rather than just going, you freaking druggy. You, tr you steal my stuff. I wish you'd die. Stop stealing my stuff. There's even a verse in Hebrews where Paul calls to the, 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 the Hebrew Christians, and he says, what, happens when, what, what happened to you? You used to rejoice when people used to take your stuff away when, you're, when you were suffering for Christ. He says, he says, how come you don't find it a joy anymore to suffer for Christ? When did our stuff become so valuable? Here's the deal, guys. This isn't a rebuke. I love you guys, legitimately. And I accept you for who you are. And I'm not trying to be like snowflakey or something. I'm really not. I just think in a world that, that absolutely wants to trash every one of us and tear us apart, I just want you to know for me and my part, I care about you. And you can have whatever funky thought you want. I'll still love you. I mean, I might take some time, but I'll still love you. I will, but only because of Christ. That's it. There's nothing special about me. But I just want you to know that because I know there's a million things when we walk out this door, there's a million pressures that say we're rejected. You're not rejected here. Not one of you. Not for being gay or for being legalistic. Both are sin. We'll work through both. Every spectrum of anything. I don't care if you're addicted our leadership doesn't care if you're addicted as far as our acceptance of you. We're here to be helpers of your joy. That's the whole role of an elder, to be a helper. He, Paul says, he writes to Corinth, what crazy stuff is happening. And he says, we're not here to lord over your faith. We're here to be helpers of your joy. So when you guys go out into this world and you go to your jobs and you go to your you know, morning coffees or whatever it is you do, Take that with you. You're not here on the planet to lord over anybody's faith. You're here to love them, to give them the gospel, and to be a helper of their joy. That's what caused the riots in Ephesus, and that's what's going to cause a, a, a revolution on our peninsula, is loving people. 
And so that's, that, what's the application for what we're talking about here? The application is let's be among the people, let's be humble, and let's love them. And let's not, we don't have to shrink back, and I didn't really cover that one in second service too much. Let's not shrink back from the gospel. It's the power of God that, that saves human beings. So we're going to pray. Um, I, you won't believe it, but I actually thought I would end 10 minutes early, but we didn't. So um, we do have a lunch. We have a baptism. Uh, so uh, we're going to take a 10-minute break. It's 12.03. We'll pray, take a 10-minute break, and then we'll come back in here for the baptism, and then we'll all go have lunch together. Sound good? All right. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and your loving kindness and just how kind you are to us. We really appreciate it. Lord, thank you for being... I don't know, so patient. Thank you for the sweet fellowship we have. Thank you for the blessings that we've been given. Lord, we do thank you that we, we have money and jobs. We're, thank you. we're thankful for that. We're thankful that we're, you know, we, we get to probably eat three times today. You're very kind to us. But Lord, may the pursuit of our heart not be these things, but may we seek first the kingdom of God and then just let those things be added to us. Lord, I pray that we go out of this place that you would help us, remind us, our mission, our job, one job is to love and to share the gospel and help people get closer to you. Lord, where we find the gospel to be, uh, I don't know, inadequate, I pray that you would convict our hearts, bring us nearer to you so we can see for ourselves just how great you are. Lord, never let us be given to temptation to the world. I don't know how that work helps, but I know that we need you. And I know that we need you in our lives. So we're praying for more of you in us and less of us in us. And we pray that you would do great things this week. In Jesus' name, amen.